Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We are in this verse-by-verse study through the book of Daniel And in Daniel chapter 12, as we've read before, Daniel's told that what he's writing is for the end times. Seal it up. Seal it up until the end. And when the end comes, Daniel, the book of Daniel, will be opened and understood. And as we were reading through that for the first time, the Lord really impressed upon me the need to spend some time together looking at the end times especially in light of what we're living in and the times in which we live. The times in which we live are no surprise to God. God is sovereign, and none of this is by surprise. For us, it's quite surprising. In many ways, it's shocking. In in many ways, it stirs us and brings great concern, but not to God. God knew and God knows how things are going to end. And you know, as a church that's emphasized the teaching of the Bible verse by verse, as a church that values prophecy and God's prophetic word, as a church that has seen fulfilled prophecy as we look back in the first coming of Jesus and we look back at other things like the rebirth of Israel, as a church that values prophecy, we we shouldn't be surprised in the days in which we live. It shouldn't be that shocking. Now, it might have a a personal shock because as as we want and hasten the coming of the Lord, none of us really want to live through the difficulty and the darkness that are going to precede it. It's sad. It's difficult. It's hard. It brings sorrow and sadness and so many people are hurt and lives are lost and chaos abounds. But as a church that's dedicated to the Word of God, one of the responses should not be surprise. We shouldn't be surprised at what we're seeing Because God said it would be so. Now, there may be a sense of surprise that we're alive to see it. There may be a sense of surprise that it's our generation. But the fact that things are happening, and as we'll see in a future study, that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man, that that has been written to us. Jesus has taught us that for the last 2,000 years, as in the days of Noah. And so I'll give you some homework before our next study. We won't cover this now, but for next study, read the rest of Matthew 24 and then go back and read in Genesis what did the days of Noah look like? What was happening in the days of Noah? And begin to piece together what was happening in the days of Noah and what's happening before your own eyes. It's a prophecy and a teaching that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago. When we come to Matthew 24, we're gaining insight on the last days. And remember, Matthew 24 is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is answering key questions that his disciples were asking about the end. And there is a longing in the heart of every man to have insight from God. And the way that we gain insight from God is to bring our questions to him. And at the same time, there's an attack upon faith by worry, anxiety, fear, and we're wondering, okay, what's going to happen in the end times? And then we ask, well, is this the end times? And if this is the end times, then what's next? And what's going to happen? And then the question comes, which is very natural, what's going to happen to me? And what's going to happen to my family? And if the end times extend a little bit more, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren? 
Some even in light of the world in which we live, some parents, some young, or some young couples are contemplating either delaying or not having children at all because of their fearfulness of bringing children into the world in which it is. This is real stuff as you watch the last days unfold before you. Very concerning stuff. And it attacks our faith. Because we entered in, when we were born again, confident, trusting God with our lives. We look back on our lives and we go, man, I have wasted so many years. And now I receive the forgiveness of God and I won't waste any more years. And we start out the gate so fast and then life hits us and regularity hits us. And then we start to read the Bible and then we find ourselves like now we're, we, we, we know the Bible now. And it's like we have, we have a bigger relationship with the Bible than we do with the author of the Bible. And we forget that we have a real, living, vibrant relationship with the creator of the universe who gave us his word, not to become Bible, have, have Bible knowledge beyond belief, but to have a knowledge of him. Because the more you get to know someone, the closer you get. Every relationship's the same way. Through time and testing, relationships grow. And through that time and testing and we begin to learn more about one another, relationships grow. But man, there is an attack. So what? God is faithful in all of this. God is faithful to give us what we need to know when we need to know it. As you might have used the phrase, you're on a need-to-know basis. And you'll know when you need to know. Not until then. God is the same way. He reveals to us what we need to know, when we need to know it, in order for us, and this is how we'll tie this whole section together. He reveals to us what we need to know, when we need to know it, in order for us to be the salt and the light in the crumbling world. Because that may be your question today. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? We'll end our time together answering that question. Pick up with me in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24 is where we left off. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person, verse 18, out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. Now, when does this event happen? This this event is known as a dual prophecy. And this event happens right in the middle of the great tribulation period. And there are two parts to this, two parts to this section. One is prophetic and one is historic. And in our study in Daniel, we've already learned of the historic part. After the reign of Alexander the Great, a king named Antiochus Epiphanes ruled throughout Syria. And he was a madman who believed that he was the Greek god Zeus. The Jews refused to worship him, and this infuriated him. So in 170 BC, he killed over 100,000 Jewish males. He raped the women, or had the women raped, and looted Jerusalem. And then he entered the temple, the holy place of God, 
with a butchered pig on the altar and forced the priest to drink its blood and eat the raw meat. And then he went about smearing the blood on every wall inside of the temple, which was truly an abomination of desecration according to the Jews. And that happened historically. But notice Jesus ties this also prophetically. And he ties it to prophetically when he says, in verse 21, there'll be, there will be greater anguish, there, there will, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. So there is a, a time in history that he's referring to, but also a prophetic element in the last days, taking Matthew 24 into the great tribulation period where the Antichrist now will, Antiochus Epiphanes was now a type of the Antichrist, a picture of the Antichrist, where he will make a historic peace treaty, a covenant with Israel. Might I just remind you that we're living in a time period where people are desperate for a sense of peace and deliverance from their current troubles. In this case, it's the, all the effects of a virus and all of the decisions of governments to say, you know what, we just want this to be eradicated and we will do whatever it takes. We will, we will hold people in their homes. We will shut down the economy. We will stop this. Whatever it takes to stop this, we are willing to do. And then as time marched on, there's this sense of this isn't working or it's not happening here. And these guys have a different plan. You know, even in our own country, right? Different states have different plans. You know, did you know that some states didn't close at all? And you go, well, let's move there. Let's get, what's going on? Some states didn't close at all. Other states didn't go as extreme. And on and on that list goes. So what happens when you begin to hear that? You're like, wait a minute. Why is there, so, why is there such differences? Some countries didn't close. Some countries handled it differently. And, and as you begin to see all the differences, there have been cries, well, you know what? We just need one leader. Why don't we just have one decision? Why can't we just take, you know, we really think this could be solved if we collectively have it in one place, one leader, one system. And as you see the days in which we live, the Antichrist, whether we're the generation that sees the Antichrist or not, I'm firmly convinced that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that, that means the Antichrist is alive right now. I don't think he's a baby in diapers. I think he's alive right now as an adult. And as you think, I don't, and you might say, well, do you know who he is? I have no idea, but here's his name. You ready? Mr. Antichrist. We know that. But no, I don't know who he is. But considering the days in which we live, it would not surprise me if he's alive today. And he will bring peace where there is no peace. Again, when we take you, those of you that now you see, man, we got to keep going to Israel while we can. I've been saying that every year. We're going to go to Israel, go to Israel, go to Israel while we can. And then here comes a year when you can't. And you're like, hey, it may close. And then we were right there this year, right before they closed. I mean, we were right there. And, and we were able to see one of the last groups before they shut the whole country down. And when they open it up again, Lord willing, and we take you again, we're going to take you up to the Temple Mount area. And when you get up to the Temple Mount area, after you get over the fact that you're there and that you're seeing everything and you're taking your pictures, you're going to consider that the greatest difficulty in the world today 
actually isn't the virus and isn't some of the things that people make it. The biggest difficulty in the world today is that golden dome on the Temple Mount. That is the biggest issue globally today. Remember, I've taught you that the epicenter of life, the epicenter of God's uh, final dealings with man, the epicenter of God's prophetic time clock is not the United States of America. It's not Russia. It's not Iran, Iraq. It is, church, where is it? Jerusalem or Israel, either one. I'd give you an A++, either one. Jerusalem. And the top of the Temple Mount where the Golden Dome sits, as you see it familiar pictures, is the place where the Jews want to rebuild their temple. Right there. And to do any damage to the mosque there would cause an uprising of billions of Muslims very upset. And yet the Bible says it's going to take place. And the Bible says it's going to take place under this man known as the Antichrist. God is going to use this man to bring a historic world peace. And he's going to sign a covenant with Israel. He will appear to them as their savior and their Messiah. But in the middle of that seven-year peace deal, he will break it. Jot it down in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness, another name for the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you all about this when I was with you? And it will be after this abomination that brings desolation that will spread. And in Zechariah's prophecy, he tells us that only a third of the Jews will escape. That's Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. Tragically, two-thirds of the Jewish nation at this time will be caught in the tremendous slaughter of the Antichrist. And many Bible scholars believe that one of the places of hiding that Jews will find themselves in is in the rock city of Petra. And it's a fascinating study and a neat, a neat place to visit. Verse 22 now. He says, in fact, this is back in Matthew 24, in fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's elect. It will be that that latter three and a half years that the Antichrist reveals his true colors, a time of disaster and destruction. And Jesus says, unless the days have shortened, nobody would survive. And then notice he uses the word in verse 22, he uses the word, in fact, there was a time of calamity shortened. At the end, he says, for the sake of God's chosen ones. Now, that's how the New Living Translation translates it, but you're probably more familiar with the phrase or the word elect. These are God's elect. And many have taken this verse and a few others and said, see, the church is in the great tribulation period because there are times in the New Testament where you and I are also called the elect of God. And if you are not careful in Scripture with, uh, as I was talking to one brother today, context is everything. You know, you can use the same word to mean two different things 
in two different contexts. We've illustrated that before with the word love in the English, without even knowing what the Greek words mean, just understanding when you, when you sit down for dinner and you have a great burger, like at In-N-Out that's opening up not too long from now, and you sit down for the first time and ever have an In-N-Out burger in Colorado, you can thank us Californians for bringing that to you very much. Thank us now, right now, go ahead. Thank us now. We brought you In-N-Out. Don't forget, it was the Californian that moved that brought you In-N-Out. So, when you sit down and you have the meal and, and you look and you go, man, this was the greatest hamburger I've ever had. Pastor Ed was right all along. Why did I ever doubt him? What was I thinking? How could I like Whataburger? You know, when you sit down for Whataburger, you say, what is this? Whataburger. So when you sit down for whatever burger you like and you finally have it and you sit down and you say, you look at, you look at, yeah, maybe you took me out to eat. Thank you very much. And you look at me across the table and you go, you know, I love this burger. I'm like, great. I love that burger too. Well, I don't like the one you, I love the one you ate, I love the one I ate, it was great, I love it. And then you drive home and you say to one of your friends or one of your kids, you know, I love you. You are not meaning the same thing, I hope. I hope you don't love a human being like you love your burger like you love whatever it might be. You can use the same, you're with me so far? You, same word can mean a different thing in a different context. It's the same thing with elect. Elect is used not only to describe the Jews, but it's also used to describe the church. Two different entities. In Romans chapter eight, verse 33, Again, reading from the New Living Translation, it says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Speaking of believers. In the New King James, it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Colossians chapter three, verse 12. God, since God chose you to be his holy people, he loves you, speaking of believers. The New King James says, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved. But Israel is also called the elect of God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect. Isaiah 65, verse 9. Israel spoken of my elect shall inherit it. Romans chapter 8, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, speaking of the Jews, remember 9, 10, and 11, is attention toward the Jewish people, but for election's sake, they are beloved. And I don't want you to miss the context of Matthew 24 here in the great tribulation period has a very deep Jewish context. You, you have references from chapter or verse 15 all the way through verse 36. You have references to Judea, to the temple, to the Sabbath. You have references to being on a flat roof coming down. You have references that are specifically Jewish. And I say that only to say that don't be stumbled by people get, taking a verse out of context and going, well, you see, the church is in the great tribulation period. Now, I respect there are different views to that particular doctrine. Some of you may still even hear, hold to a view that the church has to go through the great tribulation period. I am biblically convinced that the rapture of the church happens prior and the elect or the chosen ones here reference the Jewish people. And so we find ourselves in a time where great pain, notice verse 23 now, 
It says, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. Matthew 24 is a warning what to look for, what to see, a warning to understand the times in which you live. And we find ourselves, and I hope by now that I've convinced you, we find ourselves in a time of human history where the birth pains are increasing in intensity and growing stronger and shorter as each new day approaches. And it happens rapidly and quickly. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11, G- Peter said this, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along? The biblical worldview on culture Remember, when you think of the phrase biblical worldview, think of it how you view the world. Everybody on the planet Earth has a worldview. Everyone sees the world through, I guess you can, as I've used before, through the lens of some bias. That we we see it through somehow how we were taught. And there's a scientific uh, anti-God worldview There's a humanistic anti-God worldview. There are even different theological worldviews. And what we need is a biblical worldview, a balanced biblical worldview where we can come to the scriptures and address what we see in the culture and give an explanation to it. God can give an explanation of what you see. He can give the root of the issue. He can show us how to respond what his heart is in the culture that has rebelled against him. And and whether it's our culture in our country, or it's a culture in Saudi Arabia, or it's a culture in the Philippines, or it's a culture in Mexico, it doesn't really matter. Whatever that culture is, is a subset of a rebellious people that have separated themselves from God. And because of that, God gives us his answer on how to handle the culture and how to step into the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, on a global scale, here's God's view of the culture. The biblical worldview, as you put the, if you put the glasses of the Bible on your eyes, that's all you can see is through the Bible. I, I, we saw this weekend that we have one document that directs our lives. It's just one document. We don't have two. We don't have three. We have one document that, that directs our lives. So that becomes what we see everything through. Like the Bible becomes a pair of glasses. Uh, if you don't wear glasses, then a pair of sunglasses. So that everything you see, you see through that lens. We see through the lens of the Bible. Are you with me so far in biblical worldview? Don't miss this. The biblical worldview means how you see something. What is the lens in which you see something? So here's what the biblical, this is how God sees culture. You ready? The biblical worldview on culture is that it's dark, bad, and getting darker and worse until the coming of the Lord. That is, God has predicted and prophesied that. Things are not going to get better apart from God. It is going to get worse. 
And listen, despite the fact that mankind has increased in scientific, medical, historical, educational, psychological, and technological knowledge to such an astounding degree, so rapidly, man has not and woman has not in any way, shape, or form changed his own basic nature and has not improved society. Man is still separated from God because of his sin. As much of improvements that we may see and all the advances that man, it's almost like it's just a, a centimeter of progress. And most of the time, that centimeter of progress, what man calls progress, is actually regress because they begin to trust in what they've done instead of trusting in God. Our confidence has increased, for sure. But our peace of mind has diminished. We have more information at our fingertips. For some of you, do you remember when you had, the only set of information you had was a set of encyclopedias in your house that were years old and out of date. Do you remember, anybody amen that? Yeah, some of you don't, so you got Google, and you just Google everything. You don't even type it anymore. It's like, Google, I don't know this, so tell me about it. And Google will tell you everything you need to know, or Siri will tell you sometimes. They really need to improve Siri. She'll tell you sometimes. But back in the day, we had out-of-date encyclopedias that our parents took a loan out to pay for from the guy walking through our neighborhood selling them. We used to have to go to the library and pull out these large drawers and look through the cards to find out the book that we're looking for and then to find out what row is in and it was, it was nothing like you that are younger. You got it made. There's so much progress that's been made in your day and age so quickly, so rapidly. So you, you, I share in some of you things, you're gonna have to Google what I said to understand what it means. But has the world really improved all that much? Is sin still abounding? Is chaos still ruling? Man has invented these things and discovered these things and you know, we've put a man on the moon. We, have, we send people into space to a space station, but men still hate each other and still try to destroy each other. And there's still rampant sin. Our accomplishments have increased, but our sense of purpose and meaning have all but disappeared. Instead of improving the moral and spiritual quality of our lives, man's discoveries and accomplishments have simply provided new ways to show ourselves for what we really are. Selfish and self-centered, depraved, sinful, wicked. Modern man has just discovered new ways to corrupt and destroy himself much faster and much more rapid. We go from wars to greater wars, from immorality to greater immorality, from perversion to greater perversions. The spiral is downward, church. That's the biblical worldview. The spiral is downward, not upward. And friends, listen. We are not the church in heaven right now. We await the coming of the Lord. We want to be raptured, taken up in his presence, but we are not the church in heaven right now. We are the church on earth. And the church on earth has a responsibility. The church of Jesus Christ has a responsibility in a culture that trusts in themselves and trusts in their own advancements 
and trust in their own inventions and their own knowledge and their own progress and their own economies and their own social systems. They, they trust in things that are apart from God that have left them empty and desperate for more. The church has a responsibility on earth. We have a responsibility to live out our faith. Now I want to show you a scripture. We haven't turned to anywhere tonight. So turn back to 1 Chronicles. I want to show you a scripture because this is so good. And you may be familiar with it, but we're introduced to the tribe of Issachar or the sons of Issachar. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, I want you to mark this because they set a pattern for us. In their day, they set a pattern for us in our day. I draw your attention when you get there to verse 32. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And by the way, if you just kind of overview chapter 12 right now, and it's kind of a list, a genealogy, today this verse I'm sharing with you is one of the reasons why you read every verse in the Bible. Because if you skip verses, you're going to skip because you get through, oh, no, another genealogy. When you're reading through the Bible, you know, you got your Bible reading plan and you're reading through the Bible and you go, oh, another chapter of genealogies. Today's going to be fast. And you're just like, oh, there's chapter 12, 28,000, 40,000, 1,000, and then boom, you're done. Okay, so now I want you to show you why you read genealogies. There's a lot of reasons why, but here's one. You ready? I want you to notice how they're described. Verse 32. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. And all these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. They understood the signs of the times. Like we've learned from Jesus, you understand the weather and you can tell the weather, you should understand the times in which you live. We don't know the exact day and we don't know the exact hour of Christ's return, but we understand the times and the seasons. And we want to be like the tribes of it, like the sons of Issachar, the leaders that they understood the times and they knew how to respond and lead the nation. They knew, I like that, how the New Living Translation, they knew the best course for Israel to take. Why? Because when tough times come, there are a lot of different choices on how to respond. Or you could say there's a lot of different courses to take. When when the kids were young and we used to take them to miniature golf, uh, when you signed up for miniature golf, uh, we went to golf and stuff back in Downey or in Norwalk, wherever, whatever city it was in, and we, we would be able to go pay our way and you could choose the course. And there was a good course, and there was an easy one, and there was a complicated one, and we got to go. That's, you know, they want you to come back multiple times. You get to choose the course. Well, life is like that. You and I get to choose the course of our life, the the direction of our life, the path of our life. But it's best to understand the choices that you make by the days in which you live. Because different days require different courses. Now, all the courses point to the end. They all get to the end. And the end is that faithful relationship in Jesus Christ. But how you get there is important. We can't overemphasize the purpose of the church, which is where I want to leave us today in our final moments. Turn over to Matthew now chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Why this revelation of the end times? Why can we open up the, the news on the Drudge Report? 
or we can open up Microsoft News or Yahoo News or anywhere you get your new Denver Post and you're, you're surfing through and you're gaining all. Why can we open up the news and open up the Bible at the same time? Because God's revealing to you the days in which you live. And he wants you to set the right course. He wants you to set the right course for your family. Really, first for your life, for your family, for your church. Those of you that have positions of leadership in the church, he wants you on the right course. This is no time to be messing around. This is no time not to take things seriously. This is no time to be taking excursions and shortcuts, getting off track. No, the days in which we live require a deeper endurance, as we saw in, in our prayer time in Hebrews. Hey, this is the time that we don't grow weary in well-doing. We, we're reminded in Galatians that we're not to grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. What? If you don't lose heart. So where is the enemy trying to throw his arrows in your life? To give you to lose heart and quit and give up and go off course. Oh, can you be happy going off course? Sure you can be happy. Can you enjoy things when you go off course? Sure. That's the temptation. The temptation is for happiness. The temptation is for fulfillment. But it'll never place you in that, you'll never be in that place of ful true fulfillment unless you're on the course that God has given to you. And it's set by understanding the times in which we live. I can't overemphasize to you the purpose of the church, which is really what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is his instruction on kingdom living on the earth. And if we just allow Jesus just listen to his words. Let him, let, let, let Jesus shock you. Let Jesus offend you in some degree, although Jesus does say, don't be offended over me. It's easy to explain his words away so they're comfortable to us. It's easy to change their meaning so that they're not so challenging. And that's what chapter 5, 6, and 7 are all about. Jesus sets the tone of his ministry right in the beginning of Matthew. And notice in verse 13, he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. So let me just ask the question and answer it out loud. Who is the salt of the earth? Just say me. Say me. So I, uh, let, let's say me. Let's all say it. I'll give you the word. You can just say me. Who is the salt of the earth? Okay, so now you, you know it. Some of you didn't say it, so we're not going to let you go home. You've been away for so long, we're going to make, make you make up three months of not being here. Who is the salt of the earth? But what good? So listen, salt. What good? And let me put it this way. What good are you if you have lost your flavor? Salt. What good are we? if we've lost our flavor. Notice what he says. He says, can you make it salty again? It'll just be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Mark that word as worthless. So now we learn from Jesus that salt can have worth and salt can be worthless. Part of what he says here, salt's purpose is to be salty, <laughs> flavorful. And when salt loses its flavor, it loses its purpose. And when it loses its purpose, it is 
worthless. Who's the salt? Think about that. Jesus said there could be the possibility that because you're no longer salty, you're trampled and thrown away because you're not being used at what God has made you to be, the salt and the light. Scientists tell us that the human body needs salt to function. Sodium is the main component of the body's extracellular fluids and it helps carry nutrients into the cells. Sodium also helps regulate other bodily functions such as blood pressure, fluid volume, and sodium works on the lining of blood vessels to keep the pressure balance normal. And now 2,000 years ago, Jesus said that the world needs salt. The world needs salt. The world needs spiritual nutrition, spiritual regulation. From the context of the day, salt was used in that day as a preservative. There wasn't refrigeration, so salt was rubbed into meats to prevent decay. Salt was so valuable that some Roman soldiers were paid in salt. You might have heard the phrase that you be worth your salt, your weight in salt. Why? Because it was a valuable commodity. It was was desired and wanted. Salt was also a popular flavoring agent for all the bland foods. It brought zest and life to an otherwise dull food. You can relate to this. Some of you, because of your diet, because of what the doctor said, you have to do the low-sodium diet. Boo! Because you had your last McDonald's french fries without salt, and they're not the same. (laughs) Try it. Go ahead and try it. You're probably starting to salivate right now as you think there's a McDonald's, probably 10 of them on the way home. And it's the first thing I smell when I'm fasting. I haven't had McDonald's fries in forever, but if I start fasting, every McDonald's fry starts falling into my backyard. And they're super good with salt. But some of you on a diet that's minimizing salt, it's difficult, it's challenging. Imagine the world without salt, without salty Christians. And I don't mean salty in the way of being a smart aleck. I mean flavorful, real believers that live in love and minister the gospel and love others with agape love. Jesus is telling us today in Colorado that we can either have a purifying, preserving, thirst-creating effect, or the world will just ignore us and walk all over us. Sometimes what gets defined as the world walking over the church actually isn't the world walking on over the church at all. Jesus defines the world walking over the church and having effect over the church, not whether we gather into a room or not. That, that is, no, Jesus says this, if you're salty and you're salt in this world, you will have an effect and the world will either respect you or deal with you. But if you're not salty, the world will walk on you and ignore you. And you just gotta let Jesus' words sink in and ask yourself where you are. Ask ourselves where we are as a church. Jesus is telling us that we have potential to bring hope, love, purity, to bring spiritual nutrition, forgiveness into a world that so desperately needs it. That the answer to the issues in the world's heart, across the board, anyone separated from God, what the world truly needs is a love relationship with God. 
Not only that, but Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? Oh, well, let's learn what Jesus has to say about you right now and me. You're the light of the world. You're like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, and here's how you shine the light, and here's how you're salty. You ready? In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You ladies that have been studying through the book of James, you've already wrestled with this. This sense of deeds and where do faith and deeds come into play. I thought I was saved by faith. You are. But then uh, faith without works is what? Dead. You go, wait a minute. What do you mean? Am I saved by my works? No. True faith leads to works. You've not been, you've heard this phrase, you've not been saved by good works. You've been saved for good works. And your good works are to be seen by the world. That is often interpreted as reputation, what you're known by. Every church has a reputation. Every believer has a reputation. And I know sometimes they get it wrong. I know. We can't control our reputation, right? There could be people lying and saying bad things, slandering. I'm not speaking to that piece. That's a different Bible study. Because God, you know, he develops our character. And, and sometimes people get our reputation wrong. But we have to understand something. And you just got to take this to heart. Sometimes people get our reputation right. We can't just always excuse, oh, they don't know, oh, they don't know, oh, they don't know. But what can they know but your good deeds or lack of? What can they know? So you don't know my heart. You're right, I don't know your heart, but I can listen really carefully to your words. I know your words, what you write, what you say, what, what gets put out on social media. I know your words. Well, how could you know my heart? Glad you asked. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. To right away, someone gets defensive and go, well, I didn't speak it, I typed it. Oh, okay, all right, all right. You live that way and find yourself not salt and not light and live up to the reputation that the world's already pegged you. See, there's something greater for us. This is the will of God for our lives. But we can bring flavor to a flavorless world. We can bring light to a darkness. Light chases away the darkness. Like when, when, you, when everybody leaves today in this room and then everyone turns in for the evening at home, we turn out the lights and it's dark. You know, with maybe the exception of night lights and such, but it's dark. And in the dark, you don't need a floodlight in the dark. You can light a match in the dark. And it will, everywhere that light is, everywhere that, that little flashlight you might have or light a match, light a lighter, any, any bit of light chases, it dispels. They can't exist at the same time. Let your light so shine, church. Follow through in obedience, church. Repent of your sins, church. Confess them to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Admit you were wrong. Submit to God. Deny yourself. 
These are all Christianity 101 in our lives. Why? So that we can be the salt. We don't want to be thrown and walked all over. We want to have the moral integrity of the Spirit backed up by our behavior. That even if someone tries to slander, you know it's not true. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're like a city that can't be ignored. There's a church in town, I think, uh, I think it's also called Calvary. There's a church in town that their, their vision is to make Jesus non-ignorable, I think. I think is what they, something along those lines. Like their goal is to make sure that nobody in our city, in our metro area, will ignore Jesus. I think that's great. I think it's a great, noble goal for a church to be the light. They're basically saying, we're the light. We're on the hill. Nobody can ignore us. No, no one's going to be able to overlook us. We're going to shine the light by our deeds. Our deeds are going to be so, shine so brightly for all to see so that our Father gets all the praise. Light chases away darkness. And this dark world needs revelation and spiritual understanding. Again, remember the worldview of the world today? Uh, our biblical worldview is that it's dark. And even in the darkest of dark times, even a little light will go a long way standing in the gap on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Entire generations of, of young people today are adrift, aimless, morally, spiritually, aimlessly. Take note when he says, come back, uh, when he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Don't forget our mission. Our mission's to the world. Jesus sent us to the world. We start Jerusalem, Judea, here in Aurora, Denver, Colorado. We expand to the United States. We go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. We're ascending church. Some of you are going to be sent soon enough in the call of God upon your life. We're, sent to, we're sending into Aurora. We're sending into Lakewood. We're sending into Arvada. We're sending all over town, all throughout the state. We're sending around the country, and we're sending around the world. But tonight, we're sending you home. And God is taking you out constantly. The world needs you, your salt and your light. The world that's literal. Jesus was saying to this group, which is another, again, we could break down, we could go a lot of different ways. This is, this is such a rich section of the Bible. But Jesus tells this group of people that basically never left their hometown. Imagine never leaving Aurora your whole life. Like never, you never went to Parker. You, you never went to Montbello. You never went to Green Valley Ranch. You never went to Lyman, wherever that is. I don't even think I've been to Lyman yet. So out to Lyman, you only stayed in Aurora. And Jesus comes to you and says, you are the light of the world. And you're like, what is that? And that just encourages us that there's more to your context of following Jesus than you've experienced today. <laughs> that for you right now, it wasn't just for them. It's for you. There is more to your walk with the Lord. There's more breadth. There's more depth. There's more height than what you've currently experienced as you live as salt and light. We are the light to the world. And I hope that that just shocks you in some way. Well, you want me to reach the world? Yes. And even in our, our day and age, you know, with the internet, you can reach anybody anytime all over the world. But before the internet, before technology, do you know you could still reach the world through prayer? 
Your prayers can take you to any corner of the world, to unreached people. Your prayers can take you to people who don't know the Bible. You can, your prayers can take you to the underground church in Iraq or in China. Prayers take you around the world. And now technologies only enhance the ability to connect with people around the world. To me, it's such a joy to know that God has made me salt. He has made me light. And he has me alive for this time. And one of the purposes, or two of the purposes, to be alive in this time, right now, this day, this year, this city, the cultural upheaval that we're in, is for me to be salt and light. To be that influence in a culture that's separate from God. And that's your call, that's my call. Yeah, it's hard, and yes, it's dark, and yes, it's scary, and you can have all of the things that are attacking your faith, but once you lay those things that attack your faith before the throne room of God, you leave encouraged and strengthened and say, no, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Abiding in him and letting my good deeds be seen so that people will praise my Father in heaven. Don't give up, King. Press on. Yes, you're living in the last days, but you could say it this way. Yes, we are living in the last days, seeing prophecies fulfilled right before our eyes. And not so we can just post a, you know, get all excited. Oh, God, look at us. We know prophecy. No, no. So that we can be like the sons of Issachar and we can help people take the right course, the right path, following our Savior. So, Father, thank you. for this great section just stirring up in us even to the point where I take a little extra time to stir up our church, to stir up our city. Uh, Lord, I pray for peace and comfort to those that are fearful and worried. I know a family tonight that's lost a loved one to a great tragedy right before uh, the radio show. I pray for them. Um, The message they need here tonight is comfort and encouragement and we acknowledge that. I pray for all the angst and frustration and anger in our culture right now. Give us an empathetic ear and a sympathetic heart and let our deeds be seen, our light so shine so that our Father in heaven be glorified. I pray for the, the, uh, you know, just the heaviness in the room right now, the heaviness of, uh, of the burden and the battles that are represented here today the injustices, the unfairness, the fear. Uh, As we saw this weekend, the cheerful, I pray for them, Lord, that they would sing. We need them and everyone in between. Father, we need uh, our abiding, you know, we need to follow through what Jesus taught us, to abide in him and he would abide in us and to abide in his word and his word would abide in us. So help us along the way. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do just that. Listen, Bible study, last days, all of that is, is immaterial to you and your life and your relationship with God. So I have the privilege of declaring to you the invitation to follow Jesus with your life, to trust him, to follow him, not following your ideology, not following your uh, philosophy, not following 
uh, yourself or your own deal, you know, kind of your morality, but to follow Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who came to this earth in a human body and died for your sins. He died for you in your place. What you deserve, he took upon himself. And he proved his love for you, not only by dying on a cross, but by raising again from the dead. Amazing. He promised he would and he did it. And it was seen by many eyewitnesses. Just like you've seen things as an eyewitness, people saw Jesus themselves with their own eyes. Some of them touched them with their own hands. And it's because of his resurrection you can be saved. So for the sake of you online, I invite you to respond. You can just stand where you are. Obviously, if you're in your car, you can't do that. But maybe you need to pull over. Maybe the tears welling up in your eyes is not good for driving. And you pull over so that God can minister to you in a safe place. And you guys in the room today, with the privilege of gathering together again after so long not to being able to, God has brought you here for this moment in this room. And so if you're here today in this room and you say, Ed, I want to follow God with my life. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you and acknowledge you here personally and encourage you here personally. One thing you're going to find out about Jesus is every time he called someone to follow him, it was public, it was not private. He said, get up and leave where you are and follow me. And so symbolically, this idea of standing gives you a chance to acknowledge that in a public way. So anyone here, before we, we pray, this is... This is a very important moment in your life. One not to take lightly. Like this is your life. This isn't the car you drive. It's not the house you live in. It's not the person you marry. It's not even the person you married. It is your life. Your eternal life hangs in the balance of what you do with Jesus Christ. So perhaps you're listening afar and you've responded. I want to help you to pray and obey what God says. God says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to help you do that. You can talk directly to God and say, God, I admit that I've sinned against you and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me to die for me and I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to forgive me of my sin and I decide to follow him beginning today and God I'm asking you to help me to turn away from my sinful past and to embrace you with my life We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.